0: What is the real story behind the rise of crypto? Welcome to the Crypto Cafe with Randy Zuckerberg. I'm your host, Randy. In the Crypto Cafe, we embrace newcomers and experts alike to all things crypto, metaverse, Web3, NFTs. And today I am delighted to be speaking with Laura Shin. Laura was on my live SiriusXM show a little while back. She's an incredible crypto journalist, podcast host, and author. She was the first mainstream reporter to cover crypto assets full time, host and producer of the popular blockchain and crypto podcast Unchained, and author of The Cryptopians, which exposes the real story behind the rise of cryptocurrency. So we are are like the OG expert on crypto today. Laura, it is a delight to have you on the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm I'm, uh, absolutely delighted to be here. I have been just, I've been following everything that you've been doing. I can't wait to dive into it. But first, since we're, I wish we were sitting together in a real cafe, since we're in a virtual cafe, set the scene. What are you drinking? What is your ideal virtual cafe situation? <laughs> it's not super exciting. It's an electrolyte drink, but it's cherry pomegranate flavor, and I find it tasty. <laughs> I, you know what? That is that is healthy and with a touch of exciting. Um, so... Okay, let's dive right into your journey with crypto. What was kind of the first moment that it caught your attention and you thought, okay, this this could be the start of a new path for me?
1: Well, in the spring of 2015, the I I was freelancing at Forbes and I was getting a little antsy covering personal finance, which is the topic that I covered at the time. And I let my editors know and they said, well, hey, we have this idea to do a Forbes Fintech 50 list. Why don't you head it up with another reporter? And so she and I divided the list into subcategories and I took the category digital currencies. And I remember the first interview that I did where I really, truly understood what Bitcoin was and why it was something that was fundamentally different from these other kind of fintech startups that I was learning about. And by the way, bin, you know, Bitcoin is not a startup. Um, but, so that was one of the ways it was differentiated. But because I was learning so much about the problems with the banking system through the other reporting I was doing, uh, learning about Bitcoin made me realize, oh, this is something that does away with this decades-old system. It just leapfrogs over it. And so that was when I really understood that this was something revolutionary and truly different.
0: Absolutely. What, what have been some of the things that have surprised you the most in covering crypto, whether it's like the people you've met along the way or the situations that you found yourself reporting on? Like what have been some of your biggest surprise moments?
1: Well, so what often happens is that I'll start reporting and I have certain sources who I considered to be experts in something. And there have been a few different times where a lot of the very knowledgeable people had um, you know, their theories about where things were going. And this was a lesson I actually learned very early on in 2015 when I first started covering crypto. Because the first long article I wrote about blockchain technology was an article about how it was going to revolutionize Wall Street, and at that time, the popular mantra, like on Wall Street, but also in the um, what was then basically the Bitcoin community, was blockchain, not Bitcoin. And so what this meant was people were saying, oh, Bitcoin itself isn't really important. This asset isn't important, but the technology is important and it's going to be used to make Wall Street more efficient. And I ended up writing an article up, you know, saying exactly this. And of course, years on. Frankly, actually didn't even take that long, but it became very apparent that this was completely. Um, inaccurate. It was not where things were going. And in fact, the assets were the thing. And um, for that reason, when we actually put out the Forbes FinTech 50 list, that first list did not include Coinbase. Mm -hmm. Because when I interviewed them, Coinbase kept saying, no, no, we're not interested in this blockchain thing. We're sticking with the assets. And I thought, don't you see where all this is going? you know, you, you guys are behind the times you're, you you have not figured it out. And clearly I was wrong and they were the ones who had the vision and they knew where things were going, but that's happened, you know, multiple times since where, um, you know, now I'm a bit wiser in terms of, uh, sort of figuring out when I cover things that I need to, you know, just talk to a lot of different people with different views, but there was a similar thing that happened. And this was covered in my book, um, back in 2016, there was a big hack, of a smart contract on Ethereum. Actually, it was like a a series of smart contracts. And this ended up um, siphoning 31% of the value or the ETH in that um, smart contract to the hacker. And because this was such a popular app, it basically meant that this hacker then had 5% of all outstanding ETH. And so this caused, (laughs) yes, it caused an existential crisis for the Ethereum community. And they decided to do something called a hard fork, which is essentially creating a new ledger because a blockchain is at its core a ledger. And when it creates this new ledger, the old ledger will share the history uh, with the new ledger up until the point of the fork. And then at the time of the fork, the new uh, chain basically gets upgraded in a way where it's not backwards compatible with what happened previously. And so for anybody who's running the old software, they're going to end up splitting off from this new chain. And people's theory at the time were were things like, "Oh, well the economic incentive is that they'll want to keep their ether rather than these old kind of quasi defunct coins or the, you know, just the ones for the chain. That's not going to be the, the main chain anymore. So nobody's going to want to stick with that chain. However, because people didn't agree that this was the best way to handle this situation for ideological reasons, a number of people did keep the original chain going And so that was another instance when a large portion of the community was convinced that things were going to happen one way and it completely went the opposite way. And so these are the kinds of surprises that I have encountered um, in what is now more than seven years of covering crypto.
0: It's I mean, it's truly amazing. And I feel like even every day, I, I just I see news that just makes me be like, wow, this is still the wild, wild west that this stuff is happening. Um, Laura, talk to us about your book, The Cryptopians. I, I'd love to hear a little more about kind of the pro- the research involved. And how do you write a book that's kind of um, about an industry that's so rapidly changing every day?
1: Well, so the good thing is that since it um, is what we call uh, narrative nonfiction, meaning um, it's not me like saying, here's where I think the technology is going, and it's not a primer on what's happening, um, you know, in terms of the technology. It really was just a story. And the story that I wanted to tell was how the 2017 initial coin offering craze happened. And ultimately, um, I, I had a, a grander vision for it, which when I went to write it, I realized the book was going to be like a thousand pages long if I actually <laughs> did that. So in the end, I um, narrowed it down to focus on Ethereum because Ethereum was what was truly um, the real breakthrough that enabled this you know, kind of mass um, global uh, mania around crypto at that time. And it was the first time that crypto had really um, broken through in that kind of global way. And so uh, the, the big challenge that I faced really was that Ethereum is a decentralized crypto network and community. And so, for instance, I, you know, I've read kind of similar books, like uh, one would be Hatching Twitter um, by, um, I think, Nick Bilton wrote that. And because Twitter had four main co-founders, you know, they're, they're kind of like the main characters throughout the book. But Ethereum not only had eight co founders, but then because it's decentralized in this whole middle portion where the DAO is this just, I mean, it was definitely the biggest event in Ethereum's history. And so, you know, there were people who created the DAO, and then there was the whole thing around the after the hack the people who tried to rescue the money. And then there was kind of a a slightly different group that uh, was trying to return the money. And so, you know, just when you add in all that, and then after the Dow, then it was a whole new set of people that were, you know, kind of at the center of the action. So at the beginning of my book, I have a list of characters and it's 50 people long. And this is after I called it down to what I felt were the most essential people. So, you know, that was a challenge, but I interviewed more than 200 people for the book. And because a lot of the action took place online, there was just a lot of material that was written that I was able to get. Um, And then on top of that, a lot of my sources shared private conversations with me. So for instance, I got screenshots of um, some of the Skype chats because Skype was actually the, the main platform everybody was chatting on at that time. And I got, you know, um, Slack uh, group channel messages, uh, Twitter DMs. I got recordings of phone calls. I had photos of certain events. Um, Every once in a while, I was able to get a video. Um, There were just a lot of different materials that I was able to get. And, you know, uh, thankfully, especially like there were two phone recordings in particular that I was able to get that really helped Um, helped me a lot because what happened at that point in the book, and I'm going to explain this in a way where it won't be a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read the book. Um, Let's just say uh, something was proposed that even though the laws around crypto were not clear, um, leaving that part aside, like whether or not this was technically illegal, most people would recognize what was being proposed as at least unethical, if not, (laughs) you know, something bordering on illegal. And so initially when I had heard about these conversations, I, you know, I thought, well, okay, the person they're saying who proposed this is incredibly wealthy. So um, it, you know, it's not a good idea for me to put words in this person's mouth. And I kept asking people, you know, what do they say, et cetera. And still, I never got to the point where I felt really comfortable, you know, saying this is what was exactly said. So then later when I got the phone recordings, then, then that enabled me to publish with full confidence and to know exactly what happened. And so, you know, it was a lot of things like that, that helped the book come together, but yes, it was a beast to write essentially.
0: It's amazing. (laughs) I mean, you're, you're it historian. You're like a mister, uh, an investigator. I love it. It's it's so exciting. You're listening to Crypto Cafe with Randy Zuckerberg. And today I'm chatting with Laura Shin about the real story behind the rise of crypto. Laura is an incredible journalist, author of uh. I've Cryptopians, uh, host of the podcast Unchained, and just one of the leading voices in crypto today. Um, Laura, what is capturing your attention these days? What are you most excited to be uh, researching and reporting on?
1: Wow. (laughs) This is kind of a tough question because right now we are in what is easily one of the most eventful periods in crypto history. For people who are familiar with crypto, they'll be aware that in the last three months we've seen a major DeFi um, stablecoin ecosystem collapse. Yep. <laughs> and if you, yeah, if you add up the value of the two coins that really were the um, linchpin of that ecosystem, then it was sixty billion dollars essentially that just vanished within, you know, the span of a few short weeks, and that set off a chain of events in which a major hedge fund that kind of had a a pretty strong reputation also um, essentially had a um, file for bankruptcy. It's undergoing a liquidation process. And um, similarly, a few other crypto lenders were teetering on the verge. Two of them did have to file for bankruptcy. One of them had lent 58% of its assets to that hedge fund. And, you know, I mean, just when you kind of look at how business is done in the crypto world and you see um, how that compares to kind of what their regulations are in the traditional banking world, I mean, it's just night and day. And the, I think that the crypto world is not only learning that, um, but I think a lot of people were aware before that these things were likely going to happen. Um, People had been calling out some of these actors for a while um, I think maybe the hedge fund was a surprise, but the stablecoin ecosystem was one that a number of people had uh, kind of get, been giving warnings about. Um, I'd actually featured one of them on my show, and I later got some DMs from people saying, "You saved me so much money! Like that that episode caused me to pull my money out of that system, and and I did not not lose a cent." So, you know, things like that were happening, but the sad thing is that two of these lenders were very retail facing, meaning that their products were used by everyday people, just opening up accounts on those platforms. And so, you know, I interviewed one person who she said, Hey, I, um, was coming out of a marriage in which my children and I had to get restraining orders against my ex-husband. And we, um, got money at, from selling the house and I was planning to use that as a down payment but because the housing market's kind of crazy right now I thought oh I'll just put it into Voyager's the name of one of these companies that had filed for bankruptcy and she thought she would just have it there for a few months while she was searching for a new house and now you know whether or not she even gets the money back is it's just an open question mm-hmm. so you know these are things that have really seriously impacted everyday people and so um, I do think regulation will come. Um, there are people in the crypto community who say that they had been kind of calling out these different companies and wish that regulators had acted sooner. That you know they they wish that regulators had been paying attention to this sooner. Um, but you know, uh, even if it is sort of on the late side, I think that will probably happen at this point. So yes, there's there's just a lot of drama happening. And then, um, as I'm sure you're aware, Coinbase. Uh, just announced earnings and they took a, a really big loss in the second quarter. And it's just such a different picture from a year ago. And so in general, I feel like, um, <laughs> honestly, I feel like I'm in the, I'm watching kind of the beginning slash middle portion of what might be another book. Mm. You know what I'm, you know what
0: I mean? Yes. Um,
1: so, yeah, so I'm, I'm just kind of watching to see where things go at this point.
0: It's interesting. I mean, even just lightly covering some of these topics on on my show and, and this new podcast, I feel like even I've been on a roller coaster the past few months of seeing, you know, you mention the words Web3 and Metaverse and, and people and investors are throwing money at you to now people are running from <laughs> from hearing those words. Um, and uh, it, I think it'll be interesting to hear to see What happens in the months to come? Um, What do you think are some of the biggest things that you're seeing that are being disrupted by crypto?
1: Um, So it's hard to say uh, just in terms of like kind of more serious industries, but I would actually say that NFTs are really proving that there's um, a lot of interest here and that it's something really new and different. And so um i don't even know if i would say that anything's being disrupted so much as that um the nft space is demonstrating that there's a totally new area where they can draw consumers where people you know just have a hankering for all different kinds of nfts and we're seeing a number of companies sort of jump on that bandwagon and you know depending on the company they can effectively use a strategy with nfts to get customers more engaged Uh, a good example i would say is budweiser which pretty early on adopted the beer.eth domain name so a.eth domain name is one that's known as an ethereum name service domain name and for anybody who has dealt with crypto assets you might be aware that uh, your address is typically a random string of numbers and letters. <laughs> and so instead of this sort of gibberish address, you can get a human readable one. And that would be, for example, a .eth name. And so Budweiser bought the beer.eth name and they had been tweeting a number of memes uh, related to crypto. And then they even created a beer can with the name beer.eth right on it. And um I can't remember, was it Budweiser? Well there were a number of companies also that um had crypto elements in their ads. So there so there were crypto companies that did sorry, Super Bowl ads, I meant to say. So mm-hmm. there were a number of crypto companies that did Super Bowl ads, but on top of that there were a few just traditional companies who adopted certain um, crypto elements. And some of them, for instance, used NFTs. Right. Actually, what I remember is Budweiser had a commercial where they used the um, kind of, uh, what's the word? The iconic glasses from an NFT collection called Nouns Dow. Like all these are kind of cartoonish looking, quote unquote, nouns. They're just like little... um, they sort of look like maybe SpongeBob or something. I don't know. They're <laughs> like little squarish figures or or whatever. And then they have these glasses. And so in the Budweiser commercial, there's this like art gallery uh, of like a, or like a palace or something that's like got traditional art on it. And then like a bunch of the paintings, you know, the the portrait, uh, the the um, yeah, the people in the portraits, they're wearing the nouns glasses. So there were elements like that. So just I'm seeing um, kind of. Yeah, a a new offering. Um, And I think there are a lot of companies that are kind of taking advantage in a smart way. And one of the more more recent ones to announce something was Starbucks. And so we'll see how, you know, how they're able to use this, but it's definitely a trend that I'm watching.
0: Definitely. It's definitely something I have my eye on too. and it's it has been interesting to see NFTs starting to to bleed into pop culture and, and mainstream consumer culture a bit more. Lauren, our final moments together, I'm curious, any rising stars or exciting companies in the space that you have your eye on that all of us should make sure to have our eye on also? Well, so
1: this is actually a pretty well-known company, but at least in the U.S., it doesn't have a strong foothold yet, and that's FTX. FTX has pretty good brand recognition at this point, I would say, because it's been working with um, ambassadors like Tom Brady and Giselle A. Bunchen and um, just a number of different celebs. It has uh, bought you know, naming rights to stadiums and um, <laughs> frankly also... <laughs> The founder and CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, made a name for himself as the second largest donor to Joe Biden's presidential campaign oh. back in uh for the 2020 election. So they're a a company that at the moment I would say is uh more focused internationally, or I didn't sh- I shouldn't say focused. I should say that its market share is probably more based outside of the US. But I see that it's trying to make inroads in the US its. You know, kind of um, broadening out its footprint here. And it's taking a different tack from Coinbase. And Coinbase is sort of the large exchange that is more widely known in the US. You know, it has more than 100 million customers worldwide. It is traditionally the exchange where users in the US get their first exposure to crypto. But, you know, FTX is doing a lot to work with regulators and, um, you know, kind of. Taking a more conservative approach to listing tokens, which may serve it well in the long term, even if that means that in the short term it it can't, um, you know, offer as many different assets to potential cu- customers. So I definitely have my eye on them because I think they have big ambitions, and I think they're keeping themselves sort of small and nimble, which gives them basically a lot more money to invest strategically as it tries to grow.
0: All right. We'll definitely have to keep our eye out on for them. Uh Laura, anything uh exciting that you're working on right now that we should know about? Um, I'm I'm already excited for your next book, even though I know you're <laughs> it's just just an idea in your mind. But anything oh, no, that, that you're no. focused on?
1: I have I have a second book deal already. Yeah, actually. Congrats.
0: Yeah. All right, tell yes. us.
1: So you probably heard because this story took the internet by storm when it was made public. But back in February, there was a couple that was arrested for uh, allegedly laundering $4.5 billion worth of stolen Bitcoin from the exchange Bitfinex back in 2016. And the reason why this story just caught fire on the internet was that the woman in the couple was a an amateur rapper, <gasps> and she went by the name Razzlecon, and she had... Uh, what a lot of people were calling cringeworthy videos of her raps. And they were just a very online couple, in particular, her. And so, yeah, this story just um really captivated people, I think. And uh, there's a lot more to it. Um but essentially, I'm gonna be writing about that. and the the case is still ongoing. so i'm I'm kind of following that at the moment. How but exciting. not only, yeah, not only am I doing a book on it, but also I'll be doing a narrative podcast on that with, um, a media partner called law and crime. And so we're working on that. I, I had hoped to, you know, have, um, gotten further with it by now, but, you know, I have just been on this whirlwind with my book tour. So, um, it's only now that the, the book tour from the first book is quieted down that I'm going to start, uh, you know, digging on that.
0: Well, it's really exciting. And I, um, uh, I, that I could even see that like, I already see the the movie and, and everything uh, from that story. Um, Laura, what a pleasure to connect with you again. Where can our listeners go to to follow you and keep up with all of the coverage that you're doing on crypto?
1: So you can go to my Twitter handle, which is at Laura Shin, L-A-U-R-A-S-H-I-N. And you can also check out my podcast at UnchainedPodcast.com and If you just want to check out my author website, you can also just go to laurashin.com.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations on the Cryptopians. I can't wait to to follow your new book as it unfolds with this case. And uh, no doubt you're you're going to be at the forefront of so many new, exciting things. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today, Laura. Thanks for having me. That was Laura Shin, crypto journalist, podcast host, author at the forefront of everything exciting that's going on in the crypto space and one of the leading voices that's covering this space. So we're lucky to get some of her time in the middle of her jam-packed book tour. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Crypto Cafe. I'm Randy Zuckerberg, your host here at the Crypto Cafe. We embrace newcomers and experts alike to all things crypto, NFTs and Web3. Can't wait to be back with you next week with a whole new episode.